You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good, everybody. Buongiorno, buenos dias, ni hao, konnichiwa, my friends. And if you've listened this far, if you've journeyed with me until this point, then I'd like to consider you all my friends. I also want to wish a very warm welcome to our a brand new newest patron, Garrett S, aka G Spizzle for Shizzle. Welcome to the crew, my dude. This is Abacabu Cafe, the English language. Kimagre Orange Road podcast, and I want to welcome everybody to this very special episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm going to be talking about Shin Kimagre Orange Road, Summer's Beginning. This is also going to be a long episode. I have a lot of thoughts about this. It turns out I have a lot of thoughts about this film, so buckle up, okay? I hope you got a long ride ahead of you because I'm going to keep you entertained for the duration. Now, Shin Kor was originally released... November the 2nd of 1996 strikes me as a little bit odd when films are released outside of the season that they're set in. Like this movie is set during the summertime, 91 and 94. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a sec. By November the 2nd of 1996, it had been five and a half years since the previous release of any Orange Road animation. An unexpected situation and message in Rouge OVA were released in January of 1991. The Shinkor novel that this film is based on was published in 1994. Going by the anime TV series timeline, in November of 1996, Ayukawa would have been 25 years old. Kasuga would have been right about to turn 25 on November 2nd. His birthday would be right around the corner. He'd still be 24, but barely. Of course, we're not dealing with Ayukawa or Kasuga in the year 1996. Even though this film was released in the fall of 96, it's set primarily in the summer of 1994 and a little bit in the summer of 1991. We see some events happening in 91 as well, but the the events of this film are unfolding several years prior to its release. So it's not contemporaneous with the release date. 
This film was directed by Yuyama Kunihiko. Now, Yuyama has no previous experience with any Orange Road media in any capacity. He directed no previous Orange Road anime. This is his very, very first effort and and his only effort in the uh, world of the Orange Road franchise. However, Yuyama is responsible for like, I don't know, two dozen Pokemon movies. He directed, storyboarded, uh, did a little bit of writing on, I don't know, like a, a ton of Pokemon. The guy really got into Pokemon and made his riches in that particular franchise. So if you're a fan of Pokemon, maybe you're already familiar with this guy. I'm not very familiar with him because I'm not familiar at all with Pokemon. I'm, I'm a little old for that particular franchise, and it, it hit when I was already uh, kind of moved on to trying to be cool in high school. This film was written by, of course, Terada Kenji. This is the man who is responsible for a preponderance of the Orange Road anime media, but he also wrote the novel on which this is based with Matsumoto Izumi himself. Now, where Yuyama is a Orange Road newcomer, Terada is second only to Matsumoto himself with regard to his stewardship of the Orange Road franchise. With Terada as writer, it's reasonable for us to expect a narrative that's consistent with what we've seen before. Whenever a franchise is resumed after a lapse in production, in this case, it was five and a half years, there's always a concern that the sequels will not be the same quality as what came before. And honestly, that was exactly my concern with Shin Core. I presumed that it was going to be a soulless cash grab. It was intended to extract more money from Orange Road fans. For better or worse, worse if you're Shikaru, the Orange Road franchise had been brought to a definitive end in Anohi, or I Want to Return to That Day. And sure, the characters were still alive and fairly young still, but revisiting after concluding their wonder year seemed pointless to me. And in 1996, I could not have been more in love with Orange Road. I had watched the entire anime TV series in the spring of 96, and as soon as episode 48 was over, I ejected the VHS, put the first VHS back into VHS player, and started right back over from the beginning. I think I watched the Orange Road television series and OVA three times that year. I think I I did them three times in 96. If you think that I would have killed for more Orange Road media, then take off that dunce cap. I'd like to award you the gold star for correctly guessing the super obvious thing. Alas, Shinkor wasn't released in the United States until November of 1998, about two years after its Japanese premiere by which time I must have considered it to be an unfortunate knockoff because I knew about its existence, but I did not watch this film until 2021. It took me 25 years to watch this damn movie. I bought the DVD of Shin around 2007. I got a used copy, I think for like eight bucks. Even then, it sat on my shelf for almost 15 years before I actually put it in and watched the thing. It was actually for this very podcast, for Abacabo Cafe, that I finally watched Shinkor. Otherwise, I might have gone to my grave, never having seen it. And I'm thankful for this podcast. I'm thankful for everybody listening to it, because honestly, I was missing out. I was pleasantly surprised by my response to this film. I've got a lot of good things that I'm going to say about Shinkor, and I didn't think that was going to be the case a couple of years ago. 
You might be able to tell that I'm a little bit cynical about the idea of sequels just in general. Mostly sequels exist to make money. That's it. I find it to be pretty rare that a sequel is necessary, but a good sequel really should have artistic merit on its own. It expands the narrative of its predecessor in a way that provides more value to the viewer. It's not, um, it's not unnecessary. I mean, look at all the direct-to-VHS crap that Disney put out in the 90s. The reason most sequels are unnecessary is actually due to logistics in almost every case. When a new piece of media is being released, there's no way for the studios who control the purse strings to know for sure if the first work is going to do that well. The filmmakers don't know if they're going to get a chance at a sequel, so they're not going to leave the thing too open. So it really seemed to me that with I Want to Return to That Day, the Orange Road anime franchise had definitively ended. And what more was there to say after that? How are they going to milk that love triangle anymore after putting it to a final end, a definitive end? They managed to do it here, I'm happy to say. They do manage to provide some value here. So like many of the Orange Road episodes that we've talked about, Shinkor begins in Media Res. However, unlike preceding Orange Road Media, Shinkor begins with artillery and explosions and Kasuga running for his life quite literally. He's run for his life in the past, but it's usually figurative. Certainly, things have seemed dire for Kasuga in the past, but, but even still, there's never been an actual risk to his life. Violence in Orange Road has always been depicted in a Looney Tunes kind of way. It's always been silly fights between Sukiban armed with yo-yos and bowling balls, and physical harm to Kasuga has mostly been limited to Ayukua dunking him in a fountain or something like that. For the most part, characters in Orange Road get hurt, they shake it right off. Yusaku slams into a tree while skiing. That kills people. He shakes it right off. He's fine afterward. So they're already changing the way that they frame violence. From the opening shots, the opening images, the, the violence actually has stakes here in Shinkor. I think the worst Kasuga has ever gotten it was from Yusaku's Karate Senpai. In episode 14, he actually sustained some injuries and was knocked unconscious. He was taken to the nurse's office or whatever. They put like a bandage over his eye and shit. He looked pretty messed up. Even in I Want to Return to That Day, which is the most dour piece of Orange Road media, there's no concern that someone might die. In contrast, this opening sequence of Shinkor, this is life or death stuff. It's, it's not exactly the opening of Saving Private Ryan, fine, but it's a heck of a lot closer to that than any previous Orange Road narrative. There's a shot of soldiers running across the screen. Their shadows loom huge on a building behind them as they pass. The lights from the fires are casting these giant shadows. There's another shot of what appears to be a mannequin's head. It's decapitated from the body, and there's a prominent bullet hole in its temple. This is some pretty serious wartime imagery that we're seeing, and it's a bit of a departure from previous Orange Road media that doesn't tend to be quite this serious in its depictions of violence. The colors are drab, they're brown, they're dark gray tones. It's contrasted by a bit of the yellow-orange of the flames and explosions, but it is a stark departure from Orange Road's typically bright, saturated colors and, and of course, the madcap general silliness that I've, I've mentioned a moment ago. So this is a narrative departure 
in how they're presenting this very serious risk to Casca's life and limb, but then also there is a, a visual, a stylistic difference as well. This is not the orange road that we're used to looking at. Already we're dealing with elevated stakes compared to the previous episodes. We also learn that Kasuga is working as a photographer. This is both like his father, so there might be a little bit of a theme here about growing up and becoming our parents as we age, because he's moving into his father's profession, but it also feels like a natural progression for Kasuga, who is shown photographing Ayuko Ashikaru and himself in the opening to episodes 1 through 18. We all remember that. He sets the camera up to um, its timer so he can get into the shot, and he rushes over to get between Ayuko and Shikaru only to trip over the bench and then fall into the lake and splash, and then the, the actual photograph is him kind of sheepishly rubbing his head and like spitting out a fish or whatever. It's cheesy, but we remember that, right? If you're an Orange Road fan, you remember that opening to the early episodes, not to mention Kasuga did dabble a little bit in nude portraiture in episode 35. You guys might remember that one. That's the Ayukua nudes episode. Kasuga's voiceover informs us that he was in an accident at 19 and at 22 years old. So dual accidents and somehow these accidents are connected despite being years apart. Now, 22-year-old Kasuga is photographing the war in Bosnia and Kasuga's voiceover refers to when he was 22 and when he was 19, as if he's older now in his voiceover than both of those ages. So we're still hearing the voiceover as if it's coming from some older version of Kasuga in some future year that we haven't seen on screen yet. As he says, when I was 22, we get a shot of the older Kasuga as he photographs war-torn Bosnia. Then... In his voiceover, he says, when I was 19, and we cut to a shot of a younger Kasuga crossing the street in 1991. As Kasuga relates that at both times in his life, he had an accident, we see the camera zooming rapidly in on 22-year-old Kasuga, implying that our perspective in that shot is that of an object flying towards him. Maybe a bullet or maybe a a missile is flying right at him. We cut back to a 19-year-old Kasuga, and we see a shot of a car zooming toward the camera. We hear honking as the camera zooms in again on on 19-year-old Kasuga this time, and the cutaway to the title card occurs right at the moment of impact, right when the car would have hit him, right when the car does hit him. The intercutting of Kasuga's accidents, him being hit by the car at 19 and hit by something at 22 in Bosnia, it serves two purposes. The first is technical. Cutting back and forth creates a narrative meaning because these visual cues are used to communicate an immediate danger to Kasuga. He's about to get hit by something, and then he gets hit. It pulls the viewer in and uh, communicates these events via montage. We don't need to be told what's happening because we're witnessing it on screen and our brains make sense of the sequence of images. Now, the second purpose of intercutting 19-year-old and 22-year-old Kasuga is artistic. Despite the accidents being about three years apart, cutting back and forth allows these events to unfold simultaneously on screen. We're seeing things happen in 1991 and in 1994, but we're seeing them intermingled. We're seeing 91, 94, 91 again. Yuyama thus connects these two events, intertwines them, which is both narratively and thematically important to this film. 
Moreover, Kasuga's time-slipping is an important plot element in Shinkor, with both Kasuga's being displaced from their proper timeline. As such, intercutting their images foreshadows this displacement, this sense of being out of time. The cut to the title card feels a bit like they're showing off with the shadow of the Japanese text moving in a way that seems to incorporate some uh, CGI. It's also nice how the Shin character appears a bit late. That felt like a classy way to acknowledge the material that came before this film. One of the first things that we should notice is the big difference in character designs. You probably noticed this before you even watched the film, just looking at the cover of the VHS. You can tell Takara Akemi did not do any work on this film, no character designs. Instead, Goto Takayuki served as the character designer. On the one hand, it hurts a little bit that Takata didn't provide the character designs. The characters do look quite different to both Takata's work and Matsumoto's original illustrations of the characters. So it's a departure from what we as Orange Road fans would be intimately familiar with, what we're expecting to see when we think of Ayukawa or Kasuga or Shikaru. They look different here. Therefore, calling this film New Orange Road while also presenting such a different aesthetic makes it seem a little bit like a knockoff. That's originally how I felt about it before seeing it for so many years. I felt like uh, it was produced by an entirely different creative staff from the previous anime that that I know and love. It it gives Shin Core like an other type of feeling, and it's one of the main things that put me off to this film for so many decades. It's like when a significant actor is recast in a media franchise. Uh, For example, Mark Ruffalo took over the Bruce Banner Hulk role from Edward Norton, and that one worked out just fine. But uh, imagine like every Avenger got recast with different actors playing the same characters for Age of Ultron. That's sort of what this is like. The characters have the same names, the same voice actors, which is a strength I'll mention in another moment, but they look very different. That's sort of what it's like. Characters have the same names, the same voice actors, but they look very different. Speaking of which, it is a tremendous strength of this film that the original voice cast reprised their roles from the TV series. It does help to retain some degree of continuity in contrast to the character designs. But in Goto's defense, he had worked on key animation for all of the previous Orange Road anime, and he provided illustration for the novel versions of Shinkor. After the title card, we cut to an opening montage of Ayukawa and Kasuga. They're clearly enjoying happier times. Presumably, this is pre-accident. We see Ayukawa driving a car with Kasuga sitting shotgun. I don't think it's the car that actually ran Kasuga over, so I don't think that was Ayukawa like running him down because she was mad at him or something. Seeing Ayukawa driving a car helps age them in a subtle way. It's a subtle way of telling viewers that Kasuga and Ayukawa are adults now. We last saw them riding mopeds in I Want to Return to That Day. Even in these early moments of the film, I'm noticing appreciable stylistic differences between, even in these early moments of the film, I'm noticing appreciable stylistic differences from the previous Orange Road anime. Our opening music is not an upbeat pop banger like Night of Summerside. Instead, we have a melodic instrumental heavily featuring a piano. We also see that the color palette is a little bit different here too. It's not just war-torn Bosnia that was changed. It's a little bit less saturated and vibrant here as well. The colors don't quite pop 
like they have previously. Kasuganayuko's clothing is given a big early to mid-90s vibe, too. I think they kind of nailed that early to mid-90s look here. The 80s are well and truly over in this movie, and I can't help but lament that change in decade a little bit. Again, throughout this montage, Kasuga and Ayukawa seem to be enjoying themselves. They seem to be happy in their relationship, happy to be together. And that's really something that we didn't get with I Want to Return to That Day. So for me, that's very much welcome here. The last image in this opening montage is of a camera with its timer set to take a picture of Kasuga and Ayukawa as they pose together in front of a bay, the waters behind them. This, I think, intentionally mirrors the intro to the first 19 episodes, which feature Kasuga's Seishun Stemas opening. Everybody remembers that opening. We all agree on that. Kasuga delivers his monologue and voiceover. We see this brief vignette of him setting a camera's timer to take a picture of him with Ayukawa and Shikaru which of course ends with him unexpectedly falling into the pond behind them. Here, Kasuga is also setting up a camera to take a picture with the water behind he and Ayukua. This time, Shikaru is absent, of course. But I like to think of it as a small nod to that vignette from the TV series, while acknowledging that the characters are in a different place now that those years have passed. At the end of their date, things start getting real interesting. Kasuga and Ayukua in a hotel now, get into bed together, butt-ass naked. Is this a dream sequence? Every single time we've seen this kind of sexual intimacy between Kasuga and Ayukawa, it's been in Kasuga's mind, or the result of some ski resort ghost or something like that. So given this historical precedent, we're not shocked when, just as Kasuga and Ayuko's lips are right about to touch, we dissolve to a pure white screen over which we can hear a telephone ringing, and we dissolve back into Kasuga asleep in his bed. A first-time viewer might thus be easily convinced that that almost sex scene was just a dream. The dissolve to white and fade out of the previous scene and then into a shot of Kasuga being awoken by the phone is a wordless way to make us think that it was just a dream, using only visual cues communicated to us through clever editing. After a brief phone call with his older self, which he brushes off way too quickly, especially for a guy who can teleport and accidentally time travel, we see a glimpse of some award Kasuga's won, which is apparently the final piece of the puzzle to getting Ayukawa to sleep with him, as she seems to subtly promise in a flashback. A quick close-up of the award shows us that the year is 1991. By the TV series chronology, Kasuga would indeed be 19 in the summer of 1991. He would be turning 20 in November of that year. An exterior shot of Kasuga leaving home shows us that he's still living in the Green Castle apartments from the TV series, same spot he lived for the duration of the anime. Though I believe the name of the apartment's shifts sometimes. I think it was Greenhouse or something like that at one point. We cut to an establishing shot of the exterior of Abakabu, and it's like this parade of nostalgia for Orange Road fans. They're showing us all of the familiar locations up front in the beginning of the film. Master's redesign is a little bit jarring here. To me, he looks like he's been hitting the gym and juicing a little bit. I don't mean uh, fruit juice. I mean the injectable kind. And his hair is different now. It's like straight 
He's done something with his hair, and he looks like he's way too into arm wrestling here. It's a little bit intimidating, actually. And then upon learning that Shikaru moved to New York after graduating high school, Kasuga reflects back on his love triangle. We see a shot that pans across Ayukawa's desk from the illicit photo of Kasuga all the way to the knitting needles that she sent Shikaru to her room to get, and it's a perfect replica of a very similar shot that we see and I want to return to that day. It's a shot that I mentioned in the previous episode of this podcast. We even see the bell that Shikaru hung up on Kasuga's balcony in Anohi. Several more images in the sequence serve to cement to the viewer that Shinkor absolutely acknowledges I want to return to that day as canon, despite all of the issues I raised with fitting it into the anime timeline in the previous episode. So I think we're going to have to accept that even though it was released in 1988, I Want to Return to That Day is depicting future events, which would have occurred the previous summer relative to Shinkor, which is taking place in 1991, so that tells us that I want to return to that day should have occurred in the summer of 1990. And you do have to forget Kasuga mentioning that he and Ayukawa were born in 1969, as he does in Anohi, uh, since that absolutely does not jive with the TV series, nor does it jive with Kasuga being 19 in the summer of 1991. We just have to ignore that line of dialogue. There's a hazy white filter over the images that are uh, replicating scenes from I Want to Return to That Day, which makes the image look kind of blurry, uh, and the black and white backgrounds look overexposed. It's a stylistic feature that tells us quite clearly that we're seeing a flashback. The images are occurring in Casca's mind, and they're not events that are unfolding live. The overall effect of this is a good one, although I think it might border a bit on self-indulgent. It's an honest attempt to establish a continuity that is kind of uncharacteristic of Orange Road, but at the same time, probably rehashes a bit too much. It replays several sequences from Anoshi, including some kind of ham-fisted dialogue referencing the play that Shikaru starred in. It's faithful to Orange Road's legacy, but it also really only exists to recap content for the audience, which is kind of unnecessary, and it messes with the flow a little bit of the current narrative. It's kind of like waving to us near the beginning of Shinkor and saying, hey, remember this? This happened seven years ago. Remember this? You saw this in a movie theater seven years ago, eight years ago. It's also a bit ham-fisted that Kasuga's voiceover must remind us about the weird phone call from earlier as the Volvo is right about to run him down. As he's hit, we cut to 22-year-old Kasuga, just as he's apparently blown to shit, These shots mirror the in-media res opening we saw at the start of the movie, and now we're a bit better oriented to their temporal relationship. The next images we see are probably the trippiest sequence in all of Orange Road. I mean, if you like doing acid and you like Orange Road, this is definitely the scene to watch when you're tripping balls. 19-year-old Kasuga and 22-year-old Kasuga are both shown falling down or into flying through an abstracted realm of colors and lines as they seemingly merge at a vertical horizon point. If intercutting their accidents wasn't enough to intertwine these two events, now we get to see the Kasugas smoosh together on screen like two halves of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
A disoriented 19-year-old Kasuga awakens unsure of where or when he is, and he's actually rather bloody. He might even be gravely injured. We see his side covered in blood, his shirt soaked in his own blood. Kasuga's jaunts through time always involve some potential injury or blunt force trauma, but it's usually played for a gag, like I said earlier. There's never any real threat to his life or limb from this violence. Throwing himself down the 100 stairs, for instance, should result in some pretty serious injury, but Kasuga always shakes it off. He rubs his head, he winces for a moment. Uh, The sight gag is usually very slapstick and Looney Tunes-esque, and this is actually the most blood that we've ever seen in an Orange Road anime. We get a shot that is clearly meant to simulate the point of view of 19-year-old Kasuga as he lies flat on his back where he awoke. He looks up, we see the sun in the sky, and it begins to blur which is an effective visual cue for Kasuga losing consciousness. We then cut to Kasuga on a gurney being led into surgery, and we see an important detail in the mise-en-scene. In a close-up of Kasuga's face, his eyes are open, but his face is slack, and his eyes, importantly, are entirely gray in the iris and the pupil. There's no distinction between the two. It's a detail that's deliberately employed to make Kasuga look vacant. He's not there. He's been thrown into the future. We also get to see Ayukua's response to Kasuga's critical condition, and she's as distraught over him as you would imagine. The only other time we've really seen Kasuga in some unconscious state of pseudo-health jeopardy was in the Magic Stopwatch episode, and Ayukua was certainly concerned over him there too, but it was played a lot differently, with emphasis on the silliness. We cut back to 19-year-old Kasuga as his vision regains focus and he sits up. All of a sudden, the blood is gone. He's seemingly healed and his shirt is clean again. This serves as another indication of the unique interconnectedness of 19-year-old and 22-year-old Kasuga. 19-year-old Kasuga surmises that he must have been hit by the Volvo, but he wonders why he's in the middle of the 100 stairs and nowhere near the road that he was crossing when he got hit. A helpful newspaper blows by, literally smacks him in the face. It's like the exposition comes out of nowhere, hits him right in the face, The wind, or the newspaper, or both, wanted Kasuga to quickly learn that he'd landed himself in 1994, three years into his own future. As soon as Kasuga learns when he is, the newspaper blows away, ripped from his hands by the wind. We get a shot of it sailing away almost happily. Its work here is done. That newspaper was a lot more useful than most of the characters in this movie. I'm looking at you, twins. I like to assign it agency. I like to imagine it has a degree of sentience. Next, we cut back to a post-surgery Kasuga as Ayukua and a few others have gathered around his bedside. Oba-san seems pretty unfazed by her grandson's current condition. Either she's cool as a cucumber or she's drunk as a skunk. Oji-san offers some clunky explanations for Kasuga's current condition, but honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Their Kasuga is in some kind of limbo, and thus his body is in this vegetative state, with his soul out wandering at some other point in time. Who knows? That is to say that the 19-year-old Kasuga left his body behind in 1991 and his soul is wandering in 94. I don't know what's going on with the injured Kasuga back in, in 91. The time slip mechanic has never been shown to work like this. Previously, Kasuga traveled bodily to other times. And additionally, he must have some corporeal form in 1994. He's able to interact with others in that year. So it's not like he's just a ghost or something invisible watching events unfold like Ebenezer Scrooge. 
so I guess he's got two bodies now. He's got the one that he left in 91 that's in the hospital that Ayukawa is all worried over. But then he's also got a body that he's able to take for a spin in 94. But it's not the same body as 22-year-old Kasuga who's stuck in the time stream because at the end of the film, 22-year-old Kasuga comes back and they've got different bodies. They acknowledge it. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I don't get the opinion that I'm supposed to take it too seriously. Clearly, Oji-san doesn't take it too seriously. He interrupts his own exposition dump to ask Ayukawa if she's boned his grandson yet. So the time-traveling soul of 19-year-old Kasuga, who somehow retains all the attributes of a corporeal form, does what feels natural. He counts the 100 stairs again, of course. He wants to see if there's more stairs in 1994, right? Did they add a few? Did they take a few away? before seeing a hallucination of Ayukawa's red straw hat blowing through the air. The intro to episode one. Shinkor has been obsessively and reverently, for their part, referencing the Orange Road lore. We're not even 20 minutes in, and we've recapped I Want to Return to That Day, and we're now reminiscing about the opening moments of the very first episode. They're really doing all that they can to connect this to the existing canon. I called it a uh, nostalgia parade earlier, and that's really what it feels like. It's a series of images coming one after the other designed to play upon our love of this particular franchise. One thing after another serves to remind us that the present film is connected to this thing that we love. When Kasuga meets the Shikaru of 1994, the filmmakers set up an interesting parallel between this encounter and Kasuga's first encounter with Ayukawa on the 100 stairs, though it's a little bit less effective in this one, I must admit. Kasuga is climbing the stairs to an overpass across the very same spot on the very same street where he had been hit three years earlier, or like a hour earlier from his perspective. And of course, he's counting the stairs as he climbs. He's counting the stairs to a freaking overpass. Here, I've spent the last 25 years of my life thinking that Kasuga was counting the 100 stairs the day he met Ayukawa because it looked like a shitload of stairs from the bottom. So as he started to climb them, he decided, why not count them as well? But it's like one little flight of steps up the overpass. So I guess Kasuga just has OCD compulsion to count stairs. And as he's finishing counting the totally mundane and ordinary, like 22 stairs or whatever, he bumps into a mature, sophisticated, long-haired Shikaru at the top in a sequence that is clearly meant to parallel his first meeting with Ayukawa. Kasuga is lost in his own shit. He's counting the stairs, and then all of a sudden there's Shikaru standing above him. As with Ayukawa in episode one, Kasuga has to look up to Shikaru literally. He has to look up to see her. And she's every bit as sophisticated and confident as Ayukawa was on the day that Kasuga met her. He's impressed with Shikaru's physique, too. We get a point of view shot as Kasuga's eyes are drawn down to her body. Shikaru doesn't notice, or maybe she accepts it as a compliment, but a moment later, she makes a finger gun and touches it to Kasuga's chest. We even hear a gun firing as a sound effect. And it seems a bit referential of her bang, her post-credits stinger, shooting at the camera after the credits of Anoshi. Shikaru receiving a page, like on a, on a pager, is super 90s of Orange Road. And it's also a reminder of how times 
had changed, even in the short span from 1987 to 1994. Kasuga quickly becomes wistful in Shikaru's presence, thinking about how long it's been since he's seen her and considering her good qualities. There's even a subtle visual gag where Kasuga almost puts his arm around her as if out of habit before coming to his senses and bringing his arm back down. Kasuga also mentions that Shikaru's parents are in Hokkaido, so I think we can conclude that Shikaru's parents are still together. They're still married. I know I've speculated about that during previous episodes of this very podcast, but I think uh, we can put that baby to bed as well. Additionally, Shikaru has some dialogue about staying with a girl she knows who is her rival for a part in a play that she's there uh, to audition for and how she shouldn't rely on this friend or trust her too much because that might not go in her favor. They're rivals after all. It seems to intentionally reference Shikaru's experience with Ayukawa, who began as her best friend since childhood, but wound up becoming a romantic rival for Kasuga's affections. After leaving Shikaru, Kasuga overhears Hata and Komatsu discussing what sounds like 22-year-old Kasuga's death, just before learning that Hata became the author of a, a perverse manga, and it actually seems like the latter fact shocks Kasuga the most because he winces and grips his head as the whole image goes triple, like when Kasuga was drunk in episode seven of the TV show. Things go back to a single image just in time for Kasuga's hands to briefly disappear in an effect that evokes the climax of Back to the Future in which Marty McFly and his siblings begin to disappear from the timeline. This brief disorientation lights a fire under Kasuga's ass, and Kasuga decides he has to find the Ayukua of 1994. It begins to rain as Kasuga is shown running to her house, which mostly looks the same as before, although I'd never noticed that they had a garage before. Kasuga climbs a tree like a dipshit when he could have just teleported up in there and sees Ayukua at the piano. We get our first taste of the song Kyosuke Number 1. We also witness a murder. That is the murder of Hayakawa Mitsuru's character arc. In the Spring is for Idols two-parter, he'd seem to have grown past his skirt-chasing ways, but here he's after Ayukawa, even though she seems to be mourning for Kasuga. How long has it been since the Kasuga of 1994 has been gone? It's interesting to see a post-Kasuga version of Ayukawa clinging to his memory. It shows us how much he means to her how much she needs him in a way that feels like their relationship is a product of mutual affection. In that way, Ayukawa's post-Kasuga longing is so much more satisfying than I want to return to that day, for me at least. In the last episode of this podcast, I talked a lot about how disappointed I was with the utter lack of fanfare surrounding Kasuga and Ayukawa finally coming together in a relationship. Ayukawa's big reveal of her feelings was literally that she took it for granted that Kasuga liked her. That's what she told him. She never told Kasuga that she loved him, despite him saying it to her twice. For me, I'm sitting through Anohi scratching my head like, she does like him though, right? I really wondered, like, does she really like him? Is that how you act with somebody that you really like, that you want to date? So to see her here, so gutted by his loss, so unwilling to move on, gives me a little bit of what I was hoping for when I watched I Want to Return to That Day. This is the point at which I really started to appreciate Shin Kor. This is the point where I really felt like they began adding value. 
Kasuga tries to teleport in or something. He wants to appear before Ayukua, but he loses his grip on the world in that triple vision kaleidoscopic effect again, but not before Ayukua hears him yelling her name. I mean, he was shouting her name. He was outside, but it's almost like a psychic bond between Kasuga and Ayukua. We saw this in TV episode 48 when Kasuga shouts Ayukua in a parallel universe and main timeline Ayukua hears him. We get a shot of Ayuko peering out the window, the camera positioned low and slightly askew, which would reflect Ayuko's emotional tumult. After that image dissolves to white, we see Kasuga landing on the 100 stairs again, in what seems like pretty much the same spot as when he first arrived in 1994, and Kasuga muses that the stairs must be a significant spot for him since he's always landing there. The rain is over and it's sunny out now. And it's hard to tell if this is the same day or the next morning or what, but as Kasuga walks through town dejectedly, he catches a brief blurb on the news about his older self having gone missing while photographing the war in Bosnia. And the audio of the news story continues without interruption as we cut to Shikaru preparing for her audition. This is a J-cut where the audio continues, but the Image changes, we move locations to see that Shikaru is hearing the same thing that Kasuga is. Now, Shikaru is shocked by the news, but she reflects upon her encounter with Kasuga earlier that day or the day before, whatever it was. Cutting back to Ayukawa, we see her smoking for the first time since episode one of the TV series. In the previous scene with Hayakawa, we also saw Ayukawa drinking a beer. And a few times before in this podcast, I've hypothesized that Ayukua likely self-medicates in an unhealthy way. She uses substances when she's unhappy. And I think I'm probably right. And and that her falling back into old ways here in Shinkor is meant to underscore the positive impact that Kasuga has always had on Ayukua. And that losing him pushed her back to a substance abuse and self-medication in his absence. Oji-san is calling Ayukua to ask her if she's seen the Kasuga of 1991 running around in 1994, as well as to suggest that Japan lost World War II because American women are hotter. It seems like news to Ayukua that Kasuga got hit by a car in 1991, but she ought to know that because she's been dating him in the three years since he was hit. As she listens to Oji-san, the camera pans across a shelf in Aikua's room, showing us a small basket of postcards, which are later revealed to have been sent to her by Shikaru from the locations of her various performances. But importantly, we see the photo of Kasuga and Aikua that was taken during the intro of this film. The photo that I mentioned as a parallel to the picture setup pratfall sequence in the first 19 episodes of the TV show. That picture was taken of Kasuga and Ayukawa after 19-year-old Kasuga was hit by the car and jettisoned to 1994, as it was the night that he and she first banged out. The Kasuga in that photo has already experienced the entire narrative of this film. He's been hit by the car already, he was marooned in 1994, and already returned to 1991. Thus, it stands to reason that he would have shared his experiences with Ayukua in 1991, who, of course, over the next three years would become the Ayukua of 1994, and therefore the Ayukua of 1994 should already know all of this shit that Oji-san is trying to tell her on the phone. 
Nonetheless, as Oji-san's exposition grows more intricate, the camera rotates around Ayukawa, keeping her head in the center of the frame, but spinning around her, showing her from all angles. This is kind of a technically difficult shot for reasons that I mentioned in my analysis of Anoshi. On the one hand, you can think of it as the filmmaker's attempt at showing off a little bit, but you can also see it as a reflection of Ayukawa's interstate. As the camera rotates around her, we see her head literally spinning on screen. Her head is spinning as we're watching the camera do a circle around her. And I do have to say, I love Oji-san's demeanor as he's dealing with such an important situation. Ayukawa's head is spinning And he's cool as a cucumber, just looking at girls in bikinis with his binoculars, chatting about his only grandson being stuck in some kind of time niche, possibly forever. Wow, American girls are so hot. Now, our next scene is something special for the Shikaru stands out there. Something straight out of one of Jay Pizzle's most forbidden fantasies. There is no way that Jay Pizzle's pants stay on during this scene. I bet my life on it. Shikaru is auditioning for her role, dancing to some terrible English-language faux hip-hop song that's so terrible it's good, but then keeps going all the way back around and becomes terrible again. I'm going to play a little bit of it for you here. That's probably enough of that. I'm not going to let that go on too long for everyone's sake. uh, It's not the banger that we're used to from the original TV series. The lyrics are mostly primarily in English, which is uh, kind of different. And it's just like a wildly almost over the top sexual about making love and staying up all night. And I can bang out all night and just wild, wild stuff. Um, you guys can go find it on the internet. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to like a YouTube of it or something if you really just want to like jam out to this track for a prolonged period of time. Director Yuyama makes a point to show us that Shikaru is wearing a small stuffed angel charm. It's similar to the little cute penguin that Ayuko wears in Shikaru's Super Transformation episode. I believe that's episode 13. It's later revealed that this charm, this little angel charm that Shikaru is wearing, was a gift from Ayukawa, given to Shikaru sometime after the events of I Want to Return to That Day, which indicates Shikaru's warm feelings toward Ayukawa. Even after everything that went down, she's wearing this thing that Ayukawa sent her. Shikaru dashes out of her audition and straight to a payphone to call Ayukawa. And it's an interesting artistic choice that Shikaru breathes a sigh of relief when Ayukawa's answering machine clicks on. It's a real subtle detail in their portrayal of Shikaru in this film, but it works. I mean, it really humanizes her. She was nervous to call Ayukawa. She was relieved when Ayukawa doesn't answer. Meanwhile, 19-year-old Kasuga climbs the 100 stairs yet again as he reminisces about the day he met Ayukawa. The scene is reanimated for this film, but then is covered in a, a kind of misty haze, like a fog. It's the same effect we saw earlier, so we can tell, again, that it's a flashback. It's something occurring in Kasuga's mind. But I think there's also a practical purpose, which is to mask the new animation style as it's applied to this classic scene. I mean, it's one thing to see new character designs on older versions of the characters, and in fact, this might even help to make them look aged, 
but it would be a tougher pill to swallow seeing the new designs on a 15-year-old Kasuga and Ayukua. When we cut back to 19-year-old Kasuga at the end of his reverie, we see him sitting on the swing set that also featured in numerous television episodes. Shin Core continues to remind us of its connection to the OG anime. There really wasn't a lot of point to this scene other than allowing us to kind of marinate in our nostalgia a little bit more. Running into Shikaru yet again, she asks the real question, what the fuck is with you and counting stairs, bruh? As Shikaru and Kasuga stare at each other, we get another J cut. This time, Ayukua is calling for him. It's weird to hear her call out the name Kyosuke. It's like it doesn't even sound like Tsurushiromi saying that name. Ayukua has the twins also helping her in their search for the Kasuga of 1991. And you're damn right, Kurumi is carrying Jingoro. Because, of course, that's what she always does, right? Carries Jingoro. Takes the cat when she goes looking for her brother, who's time-traveling into the future. I mean, she's committed to carrying a 20-plus pound cat around town, despite the cat not being good for shit for finding Kasuga. That cat ain't helping. It turns out that Shikaru thinks Kasuga is running away from Ayukua, like he's being reported as missing on the televised news programs, but it's really just so he can lay low and avoid Ayukua. We cut to Ayukua arriving at the 100 stairs, though it's later, as we can see the sun is down and Kasuga and Shikaru are gone. So here is where the logic is starting to get a little fuzzy in Shinkor. Kasuga is back at Shikaru's hotel. They're going to have dinner. Apparently, Kasuga doesn't have some other pressing business to attend to, like finding his ESP family and getting sent back to 1991. I kind of feel like he should be prioritizing connecting with the Ayukua of 1994, but what do I know? Kasuga is wearing the same shit as before because, of course, he doesn't have any other clothes. That makes sense. He didn't exactly pack his bags for 1994. Shikaru has changed. She got dolled up. This seems like a date to her, at least, based on how she's dressed. Keep in mind that the Casca of 1991 would have just gone through a breakup with her about a year earlier. And he had to be vicious in that breakup because he knew that she would cling to any kindness he showed her. But now he's going out to a romantic dinner with her? We see an image of Casca reflected in the window of the restaurant. His image is superimposed over the city skyline. It thunders in the distance. We see a flash of lightning, and it's superimposed over Kasuga's head. It's like an indication of his current mental state, and it also foreshadows his future. A moment later, we get another shot of the lightning in the distance. This time, it's through Shikaru's wine glass. A rack focus from the lightning to the glass brings the glass into our full focus. It's as if Yuyama wants us to know that Kasuga and Shikaru drinking is going to be a bad idea. It's stormy weather, literally superimposed over the glass that she's pouring wine into. For her part, Shikaru does seem to want Kasuga and Ayuko to be happy together. And uh, Hara Eriko's performance here is very effective. For his part, Kasuga still can't handle his booze. All these years later, and he's still a lightweight. 
maybe we should cut him some slack because he was hit by a car that morning and thrown three years into the future or something like that. It's got to be worse than jet lag, right? Getting pushed three years into the future by a Volvo. Casca passes out, of course, drunk. Shikaru cancels his taxi. Where would he go anywhere? Where is his taxi going to take him? And then she proceeds to take a bath. Here it struck me that Shikaru and Ayukua have swapped an important characteristic. Earlier, Shikaru was depicted in a leotard during her audition. Shikaru's audition dance is shown in its entirety. Shikaru has worn two stylish and flattering dresses so far, and now she's shown in the bathtub pretty tastefully, covering up her parts, but by contrast, we've seen Ayuko primarily in loose-fitting jeans, t-shirts, neither of which really accentuate her figure. In 1994, Shikaru is the sexy one. It's a complete reversal of their portrayal in the TV series, wherein Ayukawa was always portrayed as effortlessly sexy. Episode 13 makes it clear to us that Shikaru is quite attractive, but in more of a girl-next-door kind of way, and when she attempts to take on a sex appeal akin to Ayukawa's, a mature sex appeal, it attracts all the boys in her school. Technically, it works, but it doesn't really suit her. It doesn't fit her. She decides at the end that it's not her. But by 1994, she has apparently shed that cutesy vibe in favor of a more womanly sex appeal, and it has to be the primary impetus for her new character design. The long hair makes her less recognizable. So in that sense, it could be a detriment here in Shinkor, but it also conveys her metamorphosis from the child that we followed through the TV series to the woman that she's become in 1994. So the redesign for Shikaru is about communicating this development in her character. Kasuka's presence in Shikaru's hotel room clearly carries a significance for her, even if he possesses no more wherewithal than the fake plants in the lobby. After her bath, Shikaru sits near his bed and regards him in the lamplight. Then, a moment later, she actually climbs into bed beside him. She doesn't touch him. She pulls the covers up to her chin. She seems too timid to do anything more. She may even be shocked at herself in that moment. And here I am, again, really impressed with the portrayal of Shikaru achieved by Terada and Yuyama in these silent moments. Kasuga mutters Ayukua's name in his sleep as he rolls towards Shikaru, and we see a look of surprise come across her face just before cutting to a wider shot of the room, centered on the window, showing us another flash of lightning outside in an effect that is only slightly more subtle than animating a light bulb turning on over Shikaru's head. The lightning in that spot represents Shikaru's realization. Kasuga is still very much in love with Ayukawa. It's not the revelation that Shikaru wanted four years earlier, but it's exactly what she needed in this moment in 1994. It served to restore her faith in Kasuga. He's still a good guy. She wasn't wrong about him. She immediately gets out of his bed. She's no longer thinking that Kasuga probably wants to hook up. And she smiles softly. She looks pleased overall. As she says goodnight to Costco, we cut to a shot of the city skyline as it would look from the window of the hotel room. And we see that the sky has cleared. We see the stars and the moon again. There's no thunder. There's no lightning anymore. That's also a symbol. 
The storm had been a visual metaphor for this dangerous situation that Kasuga and Shikaru were in, going on a nice date, drinking wine in a swanky hotel bar, Kasuga getting blackout drunk. The storm was a visual metaphor for the unresolved feelings between them, especially from Shikaru's perspective. It's especially relevant that Shikaru and Kasuga's last encounter in Anohi was punctuated by a rainstorm. Kasuga even contemplated bringing Shikaru an umbrella at that time. So for there to be a storm during their pseudo-romantic encounter is like an acknowledgement that they're picking up where they left off. Like there's the potential to revisit that pain, to dig up old wounds. Thus, the storm clearing is like that pain clearing once and for all. No more clinging to the past. No more what-ifs. With this moment, it's possible that Sheen Core is the actual resolution that we needed. Anoshi left us too raw. It was all catharsis, as I mentioned in that analysis. Here, it's been long enough, both within the diegetic world and the real world inhabited by us, the viewer, for the actual healing to occur. How many of us are adults now who watch Orange Road out of nostalgia for our own youth? How many of us can relate to Shikaru? Haven't we all had a painful breakup with a person that we thought we couldn't live without? And now, decades later, we can look back on that breakup with the clarity of age and understand that as painful as it was, we've moved on. We can consider that breakup as some formative event, some growing pains that were necessary for our development into the grizzled and jaded older adults we are today. Now, I think is an appropriate time to say how impressed I am overall with Shin Kor. I had come to this piece of the franchise thinking it was an unnecessary cash grab sequel at best, but I have to conclude that I was wrong. I'm finding true artistic merit here that I was not expecting. When Kasuga wakes up, Shikaru is taking a shower. I got no idea why. Who bathes, then gets into bed, then wakes up and showers again the next morning? You are already clean, dog. The skies are still clear. It's a sunny day outside. Shikaru is able to tease Kasuga first by making him wonder if they'd slept together and then by imitating his calls for Ayukua in his sleep. However, Ayukua arrives in this moment and we get a real stomach-dropping oh shit moment because this is a bad look for Kasuga. And Kasuga is the king of bad looks as evidenced by the entire TV series. Here we see more evidence of Shikaru stealing all the sexy and leaving none for Ayukua. Ayukua arrives at the hotel room looking nice, but kind of dressed like someone's mom. Then in the next scene, when they're at the pool together, we see Ayukua in a floral print one piece, while Shikaru is the one wearing a red bikini now. Also, Ayukua didn't bring a bathing suit, did she? That would make no sense. Who goes to a hotel to confront her boyfriend and brings a bathing suit? So did she go home and get it before returning to the hotel pool? Did she borrow it from Shikaru? Do they sell bathing suits at that hotel? I recommend you spend less time thinking about these questions than I have. At this point, Shikaru admits to Ayukua that she still loves Kasuga. Therefore, the previous night was very dangerous. She acknowledges it. It proves that I was right about the thunder and lightning as a visual metaphor which I also like. It also seems that Ayukua is finally seeing Shikaru as an equal now, whereas in the TV series, Shikaru was always a less capable stand-in for a younger sibling who, at times, Ayukua needed to coddle 
or to defend, as seen in Ayuka's flashback of giving Shikaru the four-leaf clover. I think it's episode 15. The scene of the three of them together is honest without being heavy. It's not burdened by secrecy like their time together in the TV series was, nor is it laden with the fresh pain of Anohi. The three characters all know where they stand emotionally, and they've had time to become comfortable with each other again. The fact that they're swimming and they're each shown in separate shots emerging from the water with an abstracted background could work as a metaphor for their birthing a new paradigm in their mutual relationship here. There's always a reason for time travel, and this transformation of the love triangle relationship is the entire purpose for Kasuga's experience in 1994. Next, the Kasuga clan, minus Takashi and Kazuya, whose whereabouts are unfortunately never mentioned in this film, gathers over at Ayukua's house for some more ham-fisted exposition. We really just need to resolve this mess of time travel, and where's the 1994 Kasuga, etc., etc. It's all explained here, except it doesn't make a lot of sense. Apparently, 1991 Kasuga displaced the 1994 Kasuga, who's hanging out in some cheesy mid-90s CGI time stream place that must be better than being inside your mama's womb, because according to Oji-san, if you hang out there too long, you don't want to leave. Oji-san and 19-year-old Kasuga do some Esper shit. The other Espers are there, but they're not really doing anything with their powers. They're kind of useless, but who knows what's going on. They're all supposed to be focusing, who knows, There's lightning, there's yelling, ESP shit. This whole part is not really well fleshed out, but tight logic and details of science fiction mechanics were never really selling points of Orange Road. Really, the whole thing is here for us to have fun, never mind the details, so I'm not going to scrutinize this scene too hard. Ayukua busts out Kyosuke Number 1, a song she gave to Kasuka back in 1991 on the first night they slept together, an event that has yet to transpire for 19-year-old Kasuga, though we saw hints of it in the opening imagery. Kasuga is sufficiently moved by this song to go Super Saiyan or something. He gets this Kenshiro-style glow to him. He's able to locate 1994 Kasuga within this uh, psychedelic time stream, And I must have had a point about it being like Mama's womb, because the elder Kasuga is even depicted in the fetal position. Then he's shown opening his eyes. 94 Kasuga is transparent against this trippy background, but 19-year-old Kasuga manages to pull him back out of that time stream and into 1994 again. But even after 1994 Kasuga is found and rescued, 19-year-old Kasuga remains in 1991. He's going to crash at Ayuko's place for the time being, I guess. This is actually a nice touch. It gives us a little bit of time to see them together, their dynamic. It's a bit odd. I mean, earlier she slapped him when she caught him with Shikaru. It shows a certain possessiveness over him. Uh, she has expectations of, of fidelity from him because she's dating him, right? She even teases him a little bit later about having an affair with Shikaru. However, in the scenes at her home and later, she seems to hold him out a little bit, making him sleep on the couch, treating him like some alternate universe of Kasuga, and she busts his balls about being a virgin. 
We get a final image of Shikaru heading to her plane to return to New York. She didn't get the part. She didn't get the thing that she returned to Japan for, but she got something that she wasn't expecting, which is a sense of closure in her relationships with Ayukawa and Kasuga. Having made contact with them for the first time in about four years, finally making things right. It's the epilogue to Anohi that she needed. We now have a happy ending to Shikaru's story. The crushing pain of I want to return to that day has eased. She can look back on that bittersweet episode of her youth as a formative experience in making her the woman that she became. Shikaru's ending is dovetailed seamlessly in with the ending of our main conflict as she comments on some reporters rushing by them without knowing that those reporters are there to cover 22-year-old Kasuga's return home to Japan. She came very close to discovering Kasuga's secret that day. If she had seen the 22-year-old Kasuga disembarking from the airplane, surely she would have wondered who the hell she spent the day with. Not revealing the power to Shikaru feels a bit like a missed opportunity to me. The fun of a character having a secret is the impact of the revelation of that secret to other characters. If they succeed in keeping their secret throughout, then it's kind of a waste of dramatic tension in my opinion. I also think that at this point, Shikaru could handle being a good steward of that secret. Given that 1994 Kasuga awoke in Bosnia, Upon his return to the timeline, even if he was uninjured, you're looking at a bit of time between them clearing him medically and him arriving home in Japan. The flight alone takes about 17 or 18 hours. So we can conclude that a few days have elapsed that were not depicted. Kasuga then has an opportunity to talk to himself in a way that none of us non-espers ever will. How wonderful would it be to converse with an older version of yourself? What expert guidance might you gain? What sage advice or timely warning could you receive? Forget all that. Older Kasuga just busts younger Kasuga's balls for not banging Shikaru. At least they got to bond over how scary Ayukawa can be and enjoy a little levity with each other. Or himself, himself? I, I don't know. That's confusing. Then there's this image. We see a little girl five, maybe six years old, walking through the airport. She stops to stare up at the two Kasugas as they laugh. And she's wearing a red straw hat, which can't have been an accident, but she has hair reminiscent of Shikaru's from the TV series. So she's maybe kind of an amalgamation of Ayukawa and Shikaru. And after a moment of gawking up at them, her mother touches her back gently and she begins walking forward again. And there's a significance to this image. That's hard to know. I mean, does this little girl recognize Kasuga from the news? Does she represent like the circle of life, the circle of youth, a reminder of the passage of generations? Who knows? It's up to the audience to interpret. The older Kasuga then jokingly blames the younger for the events of I want to return to that day before the younger Kasuga reminds him that he was there too. He broke Shikaru's heart as well. And I don't want to harp too much about the time travel mechanic that we see in this film, but at times it feels very well thought out and consistent with other instances of time travel that we've seen. The basic premise is that there's only one timeline, no indication of a multiverse. So each Kasuga is the same exact person, just at different points in time, whereas 
like a multiversal variance of Kasuga would essentially be doppelgangers, but could be very different people with different lived experiences, memories, etc. Here we're dealing with the same Kasuga at two different points in his life, same memories as both Kasuga's ponder the experiences they share with the summer that they dumped Shikaru. They both agree that Shikaru is a good person, and both regard her with the utmost respect as they watch her plane take off. They even laugh at the same jokes. They are thoroughly the same individual, just as you are the same human being now that you were in 2019. We may have had experiences in those three years that changed us, but there's a fundamental continuity of our personality that we take with us through life. And yet, there's a bit of a weird dissonance seeing them together now. If they're truly the same person, then 1994 Kasuga should be able to remember everything that transpired in this film from the perspective of his 1991 self, just as easily as you or I remember the bigger events that we experienced three years ago. On the one hand, it would seem that 94 Kasuga does remember what he went through when he was 19. Otherwise, why would he be reminding 19-year-old Kasuga to call himself when he returns, as we see at the beginning of the film, to warn him about getting hit by the car, which confirms that he's been through that experience. The call itself makes you wonder, what's the point in warning yourself of something if you know it's already happened and therefore you can't prevent it? Yuyama and Terada answer that question via dialogue from 22-year-old Kasuka. He tells his younger self that without the phone call, he would have just been killed instantly by the car instead of propelled to 1994. So I guess getting shot into the future is preferable to dying, uh, which I would agree with. On the other hand, the elder Kasuga could have avoided Bosnia, right? I mean, he would have known what's coming for three years. 19-year-old Kasuga knows that it In three years, in Bosnia, at 22, he's going to have some accident and be propelled from the time stream and exist in this crazy psychedelic land for a little while. But maybe he's going to get pushed from the timeline regardless of where he is geographically. And then there's Ayukawa. There should be a continuity of her character here, too. And we see that, but only to a limited degree. How would she have known that 19-year-old Kasuga was still a virgin unless she remembers that they didn't shack up in that hotel room until after 1991 Kasuga returned from 1994. On the other hand, given that 1991 Kasuga returns to 1991 with the knowledge that both he and his older self make it back to their own timelines safe and sound, surely he would relate that to 1991 Ayukua when telling her all about his experience in the future. Therefore, The Ayukua of 1994 would have been told three years earlier that her own Kasuga, 22-year-old Kasuga, would return to her safe and sound. Thus, she should not have been nearly as worried and grief-stricken as she was during this film. However, it was her pain over her Kasuga's absence that caused her to play Kyosuke No. 1, which was what moved the 19-year-old Kasuga into a higher power state to find his older self. So maybe her anguish was a necessary component for everything to play out properly. But again, we're dealing with a single timeline. We know that the past is reliable. If 1991 Kasuga experienced the recovery of 1994 Kasuga, then he knows that it happens because he already experienced it. 
So to conclude my time travel ramblings, I'll just say that the nonlinear experience of time for Kasuga makes this whole thing kind of hard to keep track of, and it introduces a little bit of inconsistency to the narrative. Given that Kasuga and Ayukua of 1991 have concrete knowledge of the future that Kasuga brings back with him from 94. In my opinion, the only person who really behaves rationally, given all of the knowledge the characters have access to, is Oji-san. He's pretty casual about the whole thing because he already knows that it ends well. He doesn't have to worry about his grandson in 1994 because he knows it will be fine. The time travel was interesting, but at the end of the day, at its core, this film is about the characters, as Orange Road has always been. The sci-fi stuff has always been of a secondary importance. Maybe it's there to kick off a conflict, to make something happen. But again, this film was not about the time travel element. Will Kasuga be okay? Will he not? Will he make it back to 1991? Will 22-year-old Kasuga make it back from the weird time limbo place? None of that is the real conflict. The real conflict here was the state of things between the three principal characters of Kasuga, Ayukawa, and Shikaru. The real conflict of this film was trying to move these characters into a more adult place, get them past I want to return to that day emotionally, show them growing as adults, and it succeeded. The Kasugas glow blue again, like Kenshiro, as they touch hands to send the younger Kasuga back to 1991. This is the first and only time we see Kasuga time-traveling at will and under his own full control. Oji-san was able to control time travel in episode 47 and 48 of the TV series, so apparently that's a power that Kasuga unlocked, maybe when he heard Ayukua playing the song that she wrote for him. It makes you wonder how he would continue to use this power going forward, if he can travel time at will. We end with a little bit of interaction between the Kasuga and Ayukua of 1994. This is technically the last images that we will see of them in the anime, chronologically. We won't see them again after this moment, the summer of 1994. We won't see them again in any time later than that. And I complained a lot about the interaction between Ayukawa and Kasuga in Anohi. To me, it lacked warmth. It lacked passion, especially on Ayukawa's part. It's like Terada heard me because he's written their banter here as good as it's ever been. And it's even a bit reminiscent of my favorite screwball comedies of the 1930s. I'm looking at you, Awful Truth. 22-year-old Kasuga is playful and confident with Ayukawa and... She even seems a little vulnerable with him, expressing a touch of insecurity about how Kasuga spent the night in Shikaru's hotel room. She even gives him a hard time about being gone in Bosnia for several months, and even though she's ribbing him, you can tell that she genuinely missed him. All this is to say that there's a genuine sense of Ayukawa's need for Kasuga in Shinkor that I found to be entirely absent, and I want to return to that day, much to my chagrin when I was a young man watching I Want to Return to That Day. I'm happy that we leave Ayukua and Kasuga as a happy couple in 1994. We see them kiss before the camera cuts to a very long shot of them, and they continue their passionate embrace. We even see a few still frames of them that are reminiscent of the episode-ending photos from the TV series. I'm happy that they seem like a real couple that actually share a profound and transformative love. It's the happily ever after ending that I'm a sucker for. 
When we cut back to 1991, we pick up from Kasuga's date with Ayukawa that was shown over the opening credits. We come full circle now, bookending the film, as it were. Kasuga anticipates the name of the song that Ayukawa composed for him, which he shouldn't unless he traveled to the future and learned it. It also further cements my observations about all of this happening in a single timeline. We also see that the Ayukua of 1991 is bashful to come out of the bathroom nude. It turns out she has her insecurities as well. She and Kasuga finally feel like they're in the same place, whereas throughout the TV series, Kasuga always felt like the insecure one. He always felt a bit behind Ayukua. Ayukua's line about giving birth to an esper is a great line. Always made me wonder about what their future might have held. I like to think that they did have esper babies sometime starting in the later 90s. Kasuga also does way too much talking before sex. Dog, you're supposed to save the pillow talk for after, my dude. We flash forward to 1994 again, seeing a final image of Shikaru bicycling through New York. And it's interesting to see the visual contrast between Manhattan and Tokyo. The artists clearly made an attempt to visually represent New York here. We then see Ayukawa using a laptop, which is also kind of weird to see inside of an Orange Road uh, media I don't know how common laptops were in Japan in 1994, but I don't really remember seeing many in the U.S. during that same year. Next, we see Kasuga in a darkroom developing prints of his photos. Of course, he's developing a portrait of Ayukawa. At the end of each of these brief vignettes, we see still image of the character, reminiscent of the ending photos from the TV series again. Our final image prior to the credits is that of the three still images spreading out across the screen. Black background reinforces that our love triangle has crossed that magic threshold that symbolizes the end of the road, so to speak. They're well into their adulthood. If you view Orange Road as a story about a love triangle between our three principal characters, then it ends with Anohi. Anything further is unnecessary. But if you view Orange Road as a story about the journey from adolescence to adulthood for these three characters, then this film was a necessary capstone to the franchise as it finds them transformed into adults in a way that was not apparent in I Want to Return to That Day. For instance, Shikaru is able to reconcile with her childhood best friend and with her feelings for Kasuga, putting her painful experience behind her and building her life on top of those experiences. Ayukawa is able to fully open up to an emotionally rewarding relationship with Kasuga. She's able to be honest and vulnerable in ways that she wouldn't allow herself to be during the TV series, building on her development from Anohi, in which she finally started being honest with herself and Kasuga about what she wanted from him. In Shinkor, we see that development in full bloom, and she's obviously happier and healthier for her relationship with Kasuga. And for Kasuga himself, we see that by 1994, he has found some real professional ambition in photography, and he's completely secure in his relationship with Ayukawa. He's no longer an aimless goof, although he's still a bit of a goof. That's what Ayukawa loves about him, after all. But now he's no longer burdened by insecurity and doubt. He sees himself, finally, as an equal to Ayukawa's experience and maturity. And his interactions with her are so comfortable, even as they banter back and forth. I loved it. So needless to say, Shinkor surprised me with how good it really was. 
It wasn't a soulless cash grab after all. It added to the Orange Road franchise in a productive way that I feel benefited the story by uplifting our outlook on the characters before we leave them for good. As I noted earlier, I needed to feel the love between Kasuga and Ayukawa after all of this time, and I got that here. I don't think I needed to see them have sex, but it was handled quite tastefully without any sense that the sex scene was included to titillate the audience in any way. And the music was lovely too. I would have appreciated more bangers, but the music here is nonetheless very good. In this film, we also see a more realistic aesthetic. There are no cartoonish caricatures, and as I mentioned earlier, the violence has consequences. At 44 minutes and 34 seconds, there's an image of Shikaru as she chats with Kasuga, and her head is turned away from the camera. We see her cheek and her chin, and just barely the tip of her nose and her eyelashes in a very realistic perspective. Similarly, at 81 minutes and 19 seconds, there's an image of Kasuga and Ayukua looking out at the lights reflecting off the bay, and the camera is positioned behind Ayukua. We again, we see the tip of her nose and the back of her ear with a realistic perspective. What we don't see in this film is the artistic exaggerations of the character's eyes or mouths or cartoonish gesticulation, which is all very effective expressionism, but it augments the comedy. As such, there was really no place for this kind of expressionistic exaggeration in Anohi. I mean, even the ESP had to go. And I want to return to that day to keep with the realism. And Shinkor is therefore somewhere between the TV series and that first movie tonally. We have some humor, although the physical stuff is played for actual danger instead of pratfalls. But we also have a story that doesn't work without the ESP element. All things considered, I think it's a good balance despite my preference for the silliness of the TV series. Given that this is the story where our characters are moved firmly into adulthood, it may even be more appropriate that the depictions of them are more grounded and less cartoonish. Now, as far as performances go, what we have here is pretty par for the course for Kasuga, portrayed by Furuya Toru. Tsuru Shiromi here gets a little bit of variety. She gets to express uh, some sense of need and loss that's kind of new to her character of Ayukua, but it's Hara Eriko who steals the show yet again as Shikaru. She plays Shikaru as older and wiser, maybe even a little bit gun-shy, but still plucky and outgoing, friendly. She presents a bit of a toned-down Shikaru, a little bit more low-key, but she's still very much the same person. She's still bubbly and kind, just a little bit more reserved with her feelings. It really feels like a remarkable evolution for her character. Her character is afforded a place of prominence in the two Orange Road films that she seldom enjoyed during the TV series, despite some notable exceptions like the Winter Beach episode. I think Shinkor is definitely an underrated piece of the Orange Road franchise. It provides relief and closure that we didn't get with I Want to Return to That Day, which really seemed like too much of a down note for a show that's typically so whimsical and madcap. The visuals in Shinkor also represent a departure for the series, and 
the narrative breaks new ground all the way out to 1994, but at the same time, it feels a little bit more like Orange Road with misunderstandings and hijinks and the Kasuga power. So overall, I think Shinkor is a very fitting end to the Orange Road anime. Since 1996, there have been no new animated additions to the Orange Road franchise, which I feel like is probably appropriate. It, it seems like nowadays, digging up old franchises and rebooting them decades later it seems to be very much in vogue, but maybe less so with an anime, although we're seeing a new version of Urusei Atsura coming out even as I'm recording this. We may have reached a fitting end for the Orange Road anime, but I promise you, it is not the end of the Abacabo Cafe. We're going to keep this train rolling. We've got a lot left to cover. Next week, I'm going to begin the first of several retrospective episodes. Character analyses. We're going to talk about the music. We're going to talk about overall themes and motifs now that we've rewatched and analyzed the entire thing. And then after that, we're going to talk manga. We're going to analyze each chapter of the manga. So we've got a lot more episodes to go. Stay subscribed. Also, if you want to support, please head on over to patreon.com slash There's a link in the show notes for you if you'd like to support the show. I appreciate all of my patrons. Thank you all so much. For patrons, we provide exclusive content. We provide early releases. And I send everybody swag. I got to do it. Everybody gets swag. On the Patreon, we're also going to do video content, including commentaries for each episode. These are going to be more of like a watch along, kind of a less of a critical analysis and more of a just stream of conscious what goes through your head when you're watching the episode. So I'll be leading those starting very soon. I appreciate all of my patrons. I love you very much. You guys are the best. I appreciate you all very much for listening to this episode. I'm going to leave you with a remix that I found of Kyosuke number one. See you guys next time.